I'm Alan Thorpe. And I'm David Rogers, and together we host The Weather Pod. In each episode, we invite a leading expert to help investigate how public, private and academic sectors can work together to produce weather information of value to business and society. Timely, accurate and focused weather information and related services have enormous value across all areas of human activity. It can increase the efficiency and profitability of business, help save lives and improve safety on land, at sea and in the air, and predict the spread of life-threatening diseases. Now, as climate change increases the frequency and impact of extreme weather events, weather information is crucial to build social and economic resilience. In this episode of The Weather Pod, we're delighted to welcome as our guest Tim Palmer following the publication this month of his book, The Primacy of Doubt. Tim is an eminent research scientist in weather and climate prediction and predictability. He's worked at the Met Office, at ECMWF and at the University of Oxford as a professor of physics. He is well known as the architect of ensemble weather prediction, but he is a polymath with interests that span across fundamental physics and mathematics. Tim's book, The Primacy of Doubt, discusses how incorporating uncertainty appropriately in the form of random noise into simulations and models of a range of natural phenomena, including weather and climate, is fundamental to improving the predictions of future behaviour. And that means, in this case, the weather forecast. Tim, welcome to the Weather Pod. Hi, Tim. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you, uh, Alan and David. It's great to be here and uh, good to be on the Weather Pod. Tim, your book covers many areas of science, as indicated by the subtitle, actually, which says from quantum physics to climate change, how the science of uncertainty can help us understand our chaotic world. Today, we're going to focus naturally on the the weather and climate themes in your book, which form really the major part of your text. Yeah, first, if I may, I'd like to say that the book's great. It's a great read from from cover to cover, and I I particularly like the way you actually personalised it uh, many of the issues that gives the reader a kind of a sense of drama of physics, somewhat unusual, <laughs> not an easy task, but really very well well accomplished. Um, I'd like to start with a major theme in your book, which is the idea of chaos. There are references in your book as to whether the weather is predictable given the existence of the property of chaos. Some might find this a strange question, given that meteorologists um, demonstrated the ability to successfully predict many important aspects of the weather, and indeed do so every day on TV. Of course, the public might confuse unpredictability with the fact that weather can be changeable from one day to the next or even from one hour to the next, but such changes are routinely predicted by weather forecasts with some considerable, some considerable skill. Do you think we can agree that weather is predictable, at least for many important aspects of the weather over various time ranges? Well, I don't think that weather is deterministically predictable on any range, actually, whether it's one hour ahead, one day, 10 days, you know, uh, 10 months, whatever. And um, it sort of comes back a little bit to um, essentially work that was done in the 60s, which formed the basis of uh, ECMWF being set up to do, you know, 10 day, two week weather forecasts, which was that um, people like Smagorinsky, um, Vincent Arakawa, they did these experiments 
showing that if you start with two similar states, they, they will diverge, but they won't completely diverge till a few weeks um, into the integration. So this led to the idea of what's called a limit of deterministic predictability of maybe two or three weeks or whatever. Um, the problem is, though, that this is very much an average estimate. And although there are circumstances where we can predict two or three weeks ahead, there are situations where the weather is not predictable in any deterministic sense, even you know a couple of days ahead. And in my book, I, I go through the famous October 87 storm, which hit mm. southern England. Um, and it really, so it kind of depends what you mean by predictable, because these, the event like the October 87 storm, and the, these characterize many of the very difficult to predict situations, are ones that affect people's lives. These are typically associated with extreme weather. They cause damage and death and so on. And, you know, a typical person in the street would say, well, if you can't predict those systems, then you, then you really aren't predictable. It's a bit like the economy. You know, if you say, is the economy predictable um, for six months ahead? People will quite often say, well, you got the 2008 financial crash completely wrong. And so, oh, no, I don't think the, weather, the, the economy is predictable. So people judge this question of what's predictable and not predictable, not so much by a kind of an averaged statistic, but by the particular events which affect their lives. And if you can't do a good job for these events which, which affect people's lives, then you're not doing a good job. So I think that deterministic predictability is a kind of a flawed concept actually on any timescale at all. I, I guess that, that's interesting, Tim. I guess this naturally leads us on to uh, the idea of uncertainty in predictions, as you've as you've said, and as central to your book. I'd, I'd like to sort of just pick up on this idea of, of deterministic uh, predictability first, if I, if I may. And to set the scene, I mean, I, I suppose the idea is that the goal of weather and climate science is to provide knowledge about the world we live in. And, of course, adding knowledge where there was none before is, is a process you can think of as reducing uncertainty, actually, uh, so that we have an improved understanding. And I guess from the beginning of numerical weather prediction, the idea was that the computer model enshrines the current understanding of the laws of physics as applied to the weather, and it also uses the the available observations that are collected globally. And a, a sort of a way to characterise this process is that a best estimate of the current state of the atmosphere of the weather system is constructed, and it's combined with the best estimate of the physics of the system, and we produce from that the best guess forecast. And that sort of by construction is a single estimate of the future weather. Now, of course. As you pointed out, clearly there may be errors, uncertainties in the process, but it would almost, to me anyway, seem that by construction, this um, best estimate forecast that comes from uh, our knowledge of the physics and the observations is is exactly that. It's the it's the best forecast. I, I guess you may not agree with this, but I just wanted to see what your reaction was to that kind of um, thinking. I think. Uh... My reaction to that would be that you are conflating the word best uh, in two very different ways. Uh, 
So when we talk about, for example, you know, when we do data assimilation to create a set of initial conditions for a weather forecast, <clears throat> we can say in a certain, in a certain, you know, very precise sense that that is a best guess um, estimate of the initial conditions given the observations and, and given, if you like, a previous um, analysis and model model forecast from a previous analysis. But the word best there is used in a very technical sense, which is that um, it kind of uh, minimizes some RMS, RMS statistic. You know, it's what a, a mathematician would call a, an L2 optimization problem. So you're using the word best there, as I say, in a very specific statistic sense. Now, when you talk about a best forecast, I think that's a much more um, nuanced um, the word is much more nuanced because who is it best for? You know, as I as I sort of describe in the book, if you have an ensemble where, you know, some of the members have severe storms <clears throat> and other members have, you know, anticyclones or something, and you average all that together, you'll just get a very bland surface pressure map, which will neither have a severe storm nor a particularly strong anticyclone. Now, you know, technically, um, if you seek to minimize a, a kind of an RMS error, one of these L2 norms, then that ensemble average is technically a best forecast. Uh, and in some mm -hmm. sense, you know, a deterministic forecast is best in that root mean square error sense. But is it best in the sense of providing you knowledge or information about the possibility of a life-threatening storm or you know or something that will do damage if you don't take protective action and that's where these deterministic forecasts are not best in my view I, and and so as i say it's conflating i think the word best in two completely different um, scenarios i think that that's that's a good and clear explanation i just wanted to just briefly to pick up on you use the term deterministic prediction Whereas I use the term a single estimate of of the future, perhaps you could just uh, pick unpick that. Are the, are those two synonymous? That a deterministic forecast is a single estimate of the future. Um. Well, you, you know, traditionally, um, uh, until uh, you know, ensemble forecasts started to be used, um, the operational methodology uh, in forecast centers was to rely on a you know the latest single uh, deterministic forecast forecast run from um, as you say best guess initial conditions and with no estimates of uncertainty in the models um but you know chuck leith i mean in my book i, I talk about how chuck leith um was one of the early proponents of ensemble forecasting what he would call monte carlo forecasting but actually, all he um, he advocated there was that you would actually average the uh, Monte Carlo forecast together to produce a single uh, forecast. And my view is that that suffers from exactly the same problems as the um, as the deterministic forecast. So any sort of single best single so-called best guess, you know, which is seeking to minimize a root mean square error, has got all these problems. That it's not really best in the sense of providing useful information to society so i i would i would sort of combine the two in some sense i guess we'll we'll go on um later on to, to talk a bit more about ensemble prediction but um 
Maybe David, you. Yeah. So yeah. So in your in your book, you make the case that by adding noise, a simulation of the weather is actually made more accurate. Uh, but this seems kind of counterintuitive, given that as we're talking, as we were talking about earlier, improving scientific knowledge aims to reduce uncertainty. So could you explain how adding noise can make a simulation more accurate, and uh, and and just how much noise is enough? Uh, to optimize the accuracy of a simulation, it, it would seem intuitive that by adding more and more noise, much eventually degrade the quality of the simulation. So how do we know when to stop? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good good question. I mean, let me just give you, I mean, the background to this was that um, when we started, we started operationally running the ensemble in, in 1992. Um, but it was clear pretty much from the from the start that the ensembles were not uh, were not producing adequate representations of uncertainty in the tropics. So typically, you know, the truth would lie outside the ensemble, particularly in the tropics. And no amount of fiddling around with the initial conditions would, would change that. Um, so it was kind of obvious in a way, I think, to all of us that there, there was some um, that that we weren't properly representing the uncertainty in the model equations themselves, so um, we introduced this this notion of stochastic parameterization, um, where you you essentially add noise to the uh, to the subgroup parameterizations, and that had a big a really big influence. I often joke with my I say this in a slightly lighthearted way, but um, to my deterministic colleagues that. Um, I mean, the amount of lines of code that were added were really rather small, but they absolutely radically, I mean, they improved the prediction timescale of forecasts in the tropics by, you know, several days. So, you know, which which could often take a decade of work to, you know, um, traditionally. So the amount of bang per line of code, I think, has never been greater with, with the stochastic addition to the model. Now, what we found was that when we ran the model in in a kind of longer climate mode, this noise was actually helping to reduce some of the systematic errors in the model, you know, which was somewhat surprising. We did work on weather regimes, which had an impact, um, things like hurricanes. And actually just, I mean, I just this week, I've been at a workshop at ECMWF where uh, Judith Berner from NCAR was showing how the statistics of El Nino in the NCAR community climate model is radically improved with stochastic parameterization. Um, and this is this is kind of surprising in a way because the noise is injected, you know, the, 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 the timescale for the noise is just a, a matter of a day or two. Whereas this is impacting on, you know, seasonal and longer timescale mm. statistics of El Nino. Anyway, so kind of what's going on? And I would say the answer is basically this, that you know, the, the, the reality of the matter is we're dealing with this uh, Navier-Stokes equation, this very complex nonlinear um, partial differential equation, uh, which, which couples together scales of motion right through the spectrum of, of the atmosphere and ocean, from the jet stream meanders right down to, you know, gusts of wind behind um, trees and small um, mountains and such like. And when we truncate the equations, um, we're, you know, at at whatever it is, 100 kilometers for a climate model or 10 kilometers for a weather model, 
you know, we're doing damage to those scale interactions. We're, we're kind of violating one of the actual symmetry uh, properties of the Navier-Stokes, which is this scale, what's called scale invariance. So adding noise actually helps to, you're basically adding noise at the truncation scale of the model. It just helps to smooth, to some extent, to smooth over that, that brick wall that you introduce when you do a hard truncation um, and you, 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 you basically, because with a truncation, basically you're removing all of the kind of fluctuations in the atmosphere on subgrid levels. And that's, that's doing damage to the equation. So I think you can understand from that point of view why, why adding noise can be helpful. And there are many nonlinear systems, and I, I discuss some of this in my book, um, where you know, adding noise can be uh, beneficial. Um, people who, who you know familiar in in um, in audio uh, recordings know about the, the 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 potential positive role of noise called dithering. Um, now, okay, yeah, you're right. You you know the, you can't add noise ad infinitum. You know, at, at some stage, it uh, you're right. It starts to uh, degrade the system, and it's a it's a it, it's a judicious balance. And and of course, what we what we would really like to do is to have good diagnostics from very high resolution models that could be used to determine what is the correct physical level of noise. Um, I don't think we're quite there yet, so we're doing it in a more, slightly more sort of empirical way. But I think there's very little doubt that that uh, noise to some extent is, is beneficial and, and alleviates some of the short, not all, but some of the shortcomings um, of, a, of a sort of highly truncated model. I I guess I'm still a little bit confused about this in the sense that, I mean, the parameterizations themselves are there specifically to to represent the transfers of energy, momentum, etc., from the unresolved scales to the resolved and back again. So, in a sense, that's their job. And and what you're saying seems to me to be saying that that. Then they're not good enough at doing that, and and noise noise kind of gives them a kick up the backside to to actually do that transfer more more effectively. But I suppose the difficult thing to get your head around is why does noise do that? It it sort of you think you'd need some more, um, I don't know. This this sounds a bit pejorative, but a more scientifically um, intricate way of representing the transfers rather than just adding noise. Well, I mean, you have to make judgments about the um, the form of the noise, uh, you know, like whether it's additive noise or multiplicative noise, and you have to make judgments about the um, uh, about the uh, spatio-temporal correlations of the noise from one time step to another, or from one grid box to the neighbouring grid box, and that and those judgments, you know. Um, encompass some of the the physics of the situation but you know i mean basically um this kind of scaling invariance in the navier-stokes equations gives rise to uh what are called power law um distributions of of energy which which are very ubiquitous in nonlinear systems they apply to the economy to biological systems and so on Um, and it just means that as you you know, in the case of the atmosphere and the oceans, as you go from smaller and to smaller and smaller scales, 
the amount of energy is kind of decreasing in some sense slowly. Um, now, the whole concept of a parameterization, on the other hand, is based on the notion that, um, for example, if it's for convection, that within your convective, sorry, within your grid box, you have a, a very large ensemble of convective clouds um, from which you can meaningfully derive some statistical bulk kind of behavior. Um, on the other hand, with this power law distribution, if you actually look at what happens, you go out in the real world, look at satellite data or something, you, you, you don't see this. You often, I mean, in the active areas of convection, um, you see organized convective systems on scales which are, you know, a bit smaller, but not dramatically smaller than your grid box. And then you see, you know, smaller systems yet going right down to, you know, individual small cumulus clouds, if you like. So you have this spectrum of scales. And actually, the what the tendency of you know the time rate of change in a grid box is actually determined by those small numbers of highly you know organized um, if you like mesoscale convective systems, which aren't small compared to the grid box. They're on the sort of similar scale. So the whole concept, the whole philosophy of parameterization breaks down in that sense. Um, and noise, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's not a complete panacea and if we come on to high resolution model modeling and you know I'll, I'll tell you that but but it's uh it's it's um you know it's it's better than the status quo which is just uh, sure. assuming you can just parameterize these subgrid scales like as if it was a diffusive set of you know diffusion or viscosity mm. for molecules it doesn't work like that is it just so that our our listeners are, are clear when when you use the word noise what does that actually mean in terms of what what is actually added? Is it well? That's not a good to that's do with great, sound, obviously. But that's a great question. I mean, we actually use um, what would be called pseudo random number generators <clears throat> to sort of perturb the existing stochastic parameterizations. So when you run an ensemble. Um, and you focus on a particular grid box, each member of the ensemble um, would have a, a, a different um, or different representation, say, of the convective um, parameterization perturbed by this pseudo-random number generator. Okay. Now, it's my, it's my long-term ambition that we actually use noise generated in hardware actually by the, the electrons flowing through the transistors in a computer to produce the noise, because that would actually make the whole stochastic computation cheaper. You know, we would save energy doing that. I think we're kind of wasting energy by, by, by running all these pseudo-random number generators in software when we have a perfectly good source of noise uh, uh, inside, the, the, inside the actual computer itself. And that would be something I'd love to see happen you have a good example in your book with uh, that simulation with using 64-bit and using 16-bit plus randomness, and that's very, very convincing. Yeah, I, I mean, noise, you know, we, we, we often think rather linearly about noise, that it's a nuisance, something to be got rid of. Um, but once you start dealing with nonlinear systems, there are many, many, many examples. I mean, I cut out from the book because I was just going on too long about the theory of ice ages. The notion of stochastic resonance, as it's called, um, is, a, is a mechanism for boosting 
the perturbations due to orbital fluctuations, uh, which otherwise would just be too small to do anything, you know, to the Earth's climate. Um, so it interacts with the inherent noise in the atmosphere to boost that orbital signal. And that's believed to be, you know, one of the key reasons why we have ice ages. So, you know, there are just so many examples out there where in a nonlinear system, noise can actually be your friend. It's a constructive thing. But as you say, David, to a degree, obviously, there comes a stage where if it becomes so dominant, then it then it ultimately then destroys the system. Tim, we, we you've touched and we touched in this conversation about ensemble forecasting and um i i know that um, many people will be aware of what what that is in in essence and you've been a pioneer of ensemble uh forecasting for 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 many years including at ecmwf where for example 50 or more, or more members uh or parallel forecasts are made i wonder just briefly could you um just to make sure we're all on the same page just outline the philosophy behind the ensemble approach that's used these days well, it comes back to our initial discussion about predictability, that when we look at the um, the weather, and and this is, again, true of pretty much any nonlinear system, so it's not specific to weather. And in my book, I show other examples, including the motion of planets in the solar system, um, where things can be very uh, seemingly predictable and uh, well-behaved for, for, for long periods of time, but then can go through periods of, of unpredictability. So predictability, the whole concept is that predictability is not a fixed quantity in a system. It's a variable. It's just as variable as the weather is itself. You know, you should think of predictability as like temperature and rainfall and wind and so on. It's just another variable. Um, but the point is that if you know ahead of time this predictability, it, it just helps you make better decisions. Um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, what we're trying to do is help people whose lives and businesses and so on depend on the weather make better decisions, you know, either better business decisions or better, you know, decisions about uh, life-threatening situations and so on. And an ensemble, basically because it, it, it turns what is an unreliable forecast system, the deterministic forecast system is unreliable because it goes wrong when the system is unpredictable um, into a into a reliable prediction system. So the ensemble tells you when this is going to be a difficult situation to predict and where you need to hedge your bets or whatever it is. It tells you that ahead of time. So it's basically making an unreliable system into a reliable system. I would add as a scientist, it's making an unscientific approach to meteorology into a scientific approach. If you can't estimate uncertainty, then you're not really doing science. You know, being able to put error bars on on predictions is a hallmark of science. Otherwise, you're no better than astrologists in predicting, you know, that you're going to meet a tall, dark stranger in a, in a dark alley or something. <laughs> Come follow up on, on, on that. So the one problem, of course, about ensembles is that they're real computationally expensive and they present forecasters and end users with a greatly increased volumes of data now there are also and i think you've suggested it also that we could use machine learning and ai to speed up the process of ensemble generation and eliminate multiple full need for multiple full simulations what do you think about this possibility 
Well, I need, uh, we need to be very cautious, I think. Um, let me just say one thing, first of all. Uh, when you say they're expensive, um, I mean, you know, the, the expense of an ensemble scales linearly with the number of ensemble members. And, you know, in these days of massively parallel computing, ensemble forecasting is, is a rare example of an what's sometimes called embarrassingly parallel problem. So it really is parallel, super parallel. So actually, ensemble forecasting makes really good use of massively parallel uh, types of machines. And, I, and, you know, compared with the expense of increasing resolution, I don't think ensemble forecasting is particularly expensive. But let me just come on to AI, because I think there's a really, really, really important point here. Um, as a general rule of thumb, I would say AI is, is super good at interpolating between data, but super, super, super bad at extrapolating from data. You know, I would never advocate using AI to make predictions of climate change um, in the future because, you know, the whole question, for example, of climate change will, uh, you know, depend on things like how CO2 affects uh, El Nino events and, you know, um, other types of phenomena, you know, how it affects cloud cover, about which we have no idea from existing data. So training an AI system to make a, a, a reliable prediction of climate change, you know, 50 or 100 years from now is, I think, a very kind of misguided thing to do. And similarly, if I have a, an ensemble of 50 members, I think there is a really great role for AI to fill that out, to, to make that into a you know, 50,000 member ensemble with, with much improved um, uh, estimates of, uh, of uh, you know, probability. And indeed, I, I've written you know, for WMO advocating that we should use AI to do downscaling rather than using limited area models, which I think is, is just... Um, is, is going to be a very poor second to AI. On the other hand, thinking that you can just take a deterministic forecast and somehow from that use AI to tell you whether this is going to be predictable or unpredictable. In other words, to extrapolate the structure of, you know, just to be mathematical, it's the structure of the climate attractor, you know, in the neighborhood of that single trajectory. I think that is, a, uh, that is to me, implausible. Uh, at least, you know, that it would do as good a job as an ensemble. You're asking it to kind of extrapolate from a single trajectory out to a kind of a neighborhood of state space, as I say, if I can be mathematical for a second. And that's an extrapolation problem. And as I say, I think that's where AI um, fails, essentially. Um, by the way, I should say early on in the days, you know, when I first joined ECMWF, um, before we, you know, we got the ensemble going, there was, we did quite a lot of work. I did this with, with Stefano Tibaldi and Franco Molteni, trying to see if we could forecast, you know, the, the buzz phrase was forecast the forecast skill. Could we, what could we tell from the structure of the deterministic forecast that would allow you to predict from that single deterministic forecast, whether it was going to be a skillful forecast or an unskillful forecast? And the answer is you can say a little bit, but not enough that's going to be useful in any sense. And I'm very skeptical that AI could do better than that. Um, but I do think, I do think, really do think AI has a great role to play in taking a kind of a, a skeleton of ensemble members, a, a skeleton of 50 ensemble members, 
and you know filling that out to produce an ensemble of as i say 50,000 now you're right to say the issues are how do you deal with all the data of course that's a really important question but i think that's secondary if you like to the matter mm -hmm. of principle tim I'd, I'd like us to move on to uh, i mean you've you've mentioned this already a little bit but i in the book you talk about in a sense a law of diminishing returns regarding our improvement in skill by increasing the resolution, the spatial uh, resolution, the detail in, in weather models. So just just to, to set against that for a second, I mean, if we look back at at the history of, of numerical weather prediction, in a sense, the our, our skill of forecasts have sort of advanced almost in lockstep with increasing the resolution, you know, from the early days when a weather model had 200 kilometer by 200 kilometer squares to now, you know, let almost, you know, nine kilometer by nine kilometer squares. So in a sense, uh, we're used to, to that, that um, progression, if you like. And the other thing is that the distance we can forecast into the future has advanced, but it's still quite a way away from the two week limit, if that's, if it is indeed a limit, um, that that people talk about and you, and you mention, and even at nine kilometers by nine kilometers, the grid square is still not, in a sense, providing the detail that individual people, or or even you know groups of people require to really understand the impact of the weather on them. So, are we really entering a, a period of diminishing returns relative to resolution, or are we still a bit of a a long way away from that? that limit okay um i i hope i didn't i have to go back and see exactly what i wrote but i i hope i didn't say that we were entering a period of diminished diminishing returns in a general sense um so let me let me be specific i mean i was referring there's a chapter in the book where i talk about Lorenz's famous 1969 paper. Well, I say famous, it's actually not as famous as his 1963 paper, but the 1969 paper where he presents this extraordinary, I think, um, concept that there may be a finite limit uh, to the predictability of a deterministic system which has many scales. So I kind of go through that. And the implications are that if you want to forecast the detailed evolution of uh, of weather, then there, there may well be a, a limit. Around, let's call it around two weeks. I mean, exactly what it is, I don't know, two to three weeks, let's say. But that is not to say that, there, that the whole kind of uh, weather forecasting enterprise is itself reaching a, a, a kind of a law of diminishing returns. And I don't believe that for one moment. Um, for example, let me just say two particular things. Um, this this limit of two, two to three weeks, whatever it is, is only a kind of an average limit. There will be there will be occasions where the, the predictability of the system extends beyond that, just as there are situations where it's short of that. Of course, we need ensembles to be able to tell when we're in a situation where the predictability is is, is extended. Um, and, and of course, when it's when it's shorter. So um so you know um so i so that that will effectively extend the limit of predictability because we'll be able to tell in ad, in advance when we're in super predictable situations but just focusing you see i still think we have 
a long way to go still um, in predicting even a week ahead. And I, I just want to give you an example. This, this was very vivid um, memory of a few years ago. I was at a workshop uh, in Australia, actually, where we were talking about uh, extreme weather prediction. And a colleague of mine showed we were actually talking about the flooding in in uh, in um, southern India, um, in um, Gujarat. Is it good? Um, sorry, I've forgotten the name of the province now. But anyway, in southern India, um, it'll come to me in a minute. Um, where there'd been you know, really devastating flooding um, a year before this workshop, and a colleague uh, from ECMWF was showing the ensemble prediction. He was very proud. He said, "Look, seven days ahead." there was a clear probabilistic signal of a two sigma rainfall event um, over Southern India. And the Indian colleague said, you know, he just kind of laughed. He was in the audience, just laughed at this. And we, we looked over him, why are you laughing? And he said, nobody would notice a two sigma event. This flooding was a 15 sigma event. You know, <laughs> nobody would get out of bed for a two sigma <laughs> event, you know. And I think, you know, we, we in our NWP centers sometimes sort of, you know, we, we kind of forget that real extreme events are much more extreme uh, than, than models can often actually simulate. Uh, you know, and we apply all sorts of post-processing software, you know, comparing an event against the model's climatology in order to kind of boost that signal. But the fact of the matter is we've got a long way to go uh, to get really you know really uh important severe events right even then, a week ahead of time and 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 is is resolution one of the routes to getting those better predictions absolutely resolution is one of the routes now i mean i was always a big kind of uh I, you know i i kind of resisted increases in resolution when we didn't have an ensemble because i said you know you could, having a re, having an increased resolution model when you have no idea whether you're producing something that's reliable or unreliable is is not scientific but now we do have ensembles and i'm i'm the biggest fan of high resolution models basically because high resolution means you're solving the laws of physics more accurately so okay. absolutely i'm a, i i i mean for climate change i think it's vital we have much higher resolution models than we have now i'm 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 glad we've cleared that up, actually, because um, it was obviously I, I wasn't quite getting the right end of the stick with with what you were saying. But it's not. I mean, to me, it's not totally clear because you also, if you you know, given that many countries are stuck on determinism as the holy grail and high resolution of a deterministic model, and I think you point out that you're just simply propagating even more errors if you go down that path. So it's important to make this big distinction between resolution of an ensemble and resolution of something that you don't believe is a very reliable forecasting system in the first place which is a deterministic one that's but right I'd like so, to, yeah. so david david i i completely agree with you and you know i think one of the really really exciting developments in our field in the last few years has been this um, program of what's called anticipatory action um where you know humanitarian and, and disaster relief agencies and so on take you know they go in ahead of time when you know when the when the probabilities exceed some predetermined threshold so this is a great uh use of ensemble forecasting it, it tells you it gives you an objective criterion for when it makes sense to to take precautionary action uh, and and when it doesn't 
And I think that there is a, a, a big role for the National Met Services to, 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 you know, to, to advance this science, but it's not through trying to make the forecast more deterministic. That's really the wrong way mm -hmm. to go. Now, I understand, you know, when, when um, you know, Met, National Met Services, particularly in developing countries, they don't have big computer resources, you know, um, they they may feel that the best use of their resources is to just create a single deterministic limited area model or something like that and and and, and assume that's the best i think that you know we talked about ai i think this is where ai can really transform the whole way in which national met services work in taking the global ensemble data and downscaling it using ai uh, using, by the way, their own uh, observational, their own local observational networks to do the training for the AI system. This is actually a great use of of uh, of, of national observing capabilities that you know perhaps otherwise are not made best use of. Uh, so instead of running a single or a small number of limited area models, they can probabilistically downscale um, the global ensembles, and then that data then can be given to the various uh, disaster agencies, national or international agencies, to do this fantastic job of determining when to take anticipatory action, how to make best use of the limited funding that these agencies have to help people at risk of severe weather. So I think we're at the cusp of potentially what could be a major change in the way in which we work, you know, uh, as, a, as a kind of a meteorological society it, interfacing with uh with this, this underlines in a way this underlines a, a really important point and that is about international cooperation uh because when you say the global the global ensembles you know somebody has to produce those which are typically a subset of the developed countries and that information needs to get to the developing countries effectively and be used effectively in the ways you've described and it, it sort of takes what i think we're all pretty proud of which is how cooperative the the weather enterprise is but it takes it to another level actually of, of connectivity and cooperation which we shouldn't necessarily take for granted because there are challenges in getting that cooperation to be effective as i'm sure david would uh, would underline yeah and i, th I think i mean it I totally agree with what you've what you've said, and I but I f I feel that there's still something that's missing in how persuasive we are with a lot of countries who are you know they're receiving resources from outside whether it be the World Bank or other development partners, and a lot of them are just simply thinking about buying a modest scale modest scale high performance computer, focusing on the traditional and not really picking up on really where the advances are and this notion of well the ECM, I hear this very often oh the ECMWF model is only at this resolution therefore <laughs> we'll use it to run our deterministic model and and it's like no you know yet you know it's how can we be more persuasive about about this I mean it seems critical right right now a lot of money goes into the wrong things as a result of not not essentially understanding what the problem is and how to address it. Well, I, I think there are two two things here. One is um, to say that you know at the at the level of the scientists in these um, in these met services, there is fantastic you know science to be done 
<clears throat> interfacing AI <clears throat> based code, you know, generative adversarial networks and all this kind of really sexy modern, you know, data science um, interfacing that um, with with the global NWP output. I think this is really exciting science um, that should sort of stimulate anyone, um, you know, working on this and, and you know, I mean, dare I say it? I mean, if you if you if you become an expert in AI, you are very marketable <laughs> around the world. So you know, this is this mm. is good for you, and it's good for the science, and it's, it's everyone's a winner. For the directors of the Met Services, I I just say this that you know, as I say, it provides them with a real new type of rationale for going to government to maintain their observing systems. You know, the fact of the matter is that. You know, ECMWF, the, the major source of data for ECMWF are the satellites, and it's hard to make use of, you know, regional radar and, and local weather observations. But it's these radars and weather observations that local observations are going to be absolutely critical for the AI training process in going to doing that downscaling. So it provides the directors with a, a kind of rationale for keeping their budgets and potentially expanding their budgets. Uh, and of course, the training and running the AI will need computers. Um, they won't need the biggest supercomputers in the world, but they'll need computers of some sort. So, you know, it's just taking national Met services, moving them into the 21st century in terms of uh, basic science, but also providing then the, the basic tools for making much better decisions for farmers, for hydrologists, you know, for health workers, and of course, for disaster preparedness agencies. So it's absolutely win-win-win all the way through. Uh, th thanks, thanks, Tim. So as we come to a close, one of the uh, major developments in meteorological prediction that you touch on in your book is the idea of a digital twin of planet Earth. Could you give us a kind of brief update on what the idea is with uh, digital twins and how they differ from the global weather and climate models that we're used to? Well, I think the basic idea here is that, um, you know, weather is sort of an intermediary for most of the important decisions that uh you know people make in their lives it it you know it, it could be if if the river is flooding the rainfall is obviously a major major input but ultimately the uh the decision is based on whether the river floods or not um and if you're you know predicting um a, a malaria outbreak the important decisions will be in the malaria how much the malaria incidence will go up it's affected by the rain and the temperature, but those are intermediate. So a digital twin is trying to combine these um, impact models into, into the kind of weather and climate, into a much more integrated um, way. And I, I think, by the way, this will help alleviate some of the data problems because um, if, you, if you can combine the impact models into the code, then the requirements for you know storing all the meteorological ensemble data actually become less because you're you're making use of that on the fly so actually the so the whole digital twin is really trying and and by the way i i think you know i'm i'm looking forward to the day when what are called agent based models of the economy are built into our weather and climate models so we can actually have estimates of how you know, local economies are going to uh, be affected by uh, weather extremes and changes in climate. Um, 
So it's kind of an exciting future. Uh, it's a more integrated future. We're, we're, you know, we're, we'll be much less siloed uh, into our disciplines and much more interdisciplinary, which I think is a good thing. Um, and we're moving slowly towards it. Well, Tim, that this has been a really fascinating conversation that we've had. And I really want to thank you um, both for the book and also for joining us as a guest on, on this episode of The Weather Pod. Yeah, th- uh, thanks, thanks, Tim. It's been really interesting and great to discuss the fundamentals, how we can basically p- predict the evolution of the weather and climate and, pre- and predict predictability. Thanks a lot. Tim. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much indeed. Well, that concludes this episode of The Weather Pod. We hope you've enjoyed it. Alan and I will be back next month. And in the meantime, please give us your feedback via email to support at gweforum.org. Thank you.